On this week's episode, we speak to Nick Winkleman, Head of Athletic Performance and Science for the IRFU. With a great discussion, Nick speaks about the importance of the language we use and its consistency, the benefits of developing a common vocabulary between coach and athlete, and he speaks about silence sometimes being a coach's best friend. Loads more discussed. As always, thanks for listening. Enjoy the show. Nick, thanks a million for joining us on the show. Uh, really delighted to have you. Your new book, The Language of Coaching, focuses on the impact communication can have on coaching. So I'd like to jump in straight in there, if that's okay, uh, and maybe start with a broad overview of what it's all about, and maybe we can then dig into some of the topics a little bit deeper. Yeah, Stephen, now it's a pleasure to be on, so I appreciate the opportunity to share uh, some insights through our conversation. So when you look at the, the title, The Language of Coaching, uh, most certainly it's going to be self-explanatory. We're, we're looking at how we use words and, and how we use language as coaches. Um, ultimately, I don't want the word coach, even though this is a, a kind of coaching-centric podcast, I don't want the word coach to uh, immediately dismiss certain populations uh, and what I mean by that is the book is really written for movement professionals. And so for anyone listening who uh, instructs others on, on how to move and how to move better, and to the degree that we use language as a part of that journey, that's really what the book is about. And if I was to kind of give the canned statement of, of what I'm trying to achieve with the book, it's something like this. And that is when we use language to coach, I think it's fair to say that we're, we're operating on the assumption that, Stephen, if I'm working with you and you're sprinting, I'm giving you a cue. I'm giving you something to focus on. And I'm using language to do that. I'm using language to turn my thoughts into your thoughts. And so ultimately, my language turns into your literal focus. It transforms itself into how you think while you move. It's a passenger of the mind, so to speak. And then ultimately, that focus will have an impact on your movement, both in the short term, but if you repeatedly focus in such a way in the long term. And so ultimately, it's how language turns into thought and how thought or focus more specifically uh, drives movement and the learning of movement. And I think we as coaches, and if we put on our experience as athletes, we've experienced the full spectrum, right? We've had that coach who's unbelievably gifted at keeping things very simple, putting images in our mind, uh, allowing us to have fun during the learning process, but also feel like we're getting better. We've also, on the other side of the continuum, possibly had the coach that coached a lot, maybe overcoached, a lot of words, a lot of ideas. Maybe you as the athlete even felt like those ideas were changing every single rep, every single practice. So there wasn't like this coherent understanding of what you were trying to necessarily improve. And ultimately you'd have glimpses of improvement, but you oftentimes felt frustrated and inconsistent, right? Those are kind of the extremes. And then we have everything in, in, in between. And so ultimately what's the red thread throughout all of that is, is language. And language has a massive impact on how we interact and impact others. And the final footnote I will put on this is even though I titled the book, The Language of Coaching, if you just listened to, again, my, my canned description of what the book is about, ultimately what we're talking about is how what we think about while we move impacts the way we move and the way we learn to move. And we can't lose sight of that. 
The entire book is how do we get the ideas out of our head and into our athlete's body? That's really what it's about. And we use language as a primary medium to do that. Okay. Uh, the importance of language then is crucial. And I suppose we've talked about it before and other people have mentioned it, but probably not in the level of detail that you just did, Nick. So can you give me like, let's say a practical example of how that would work for you, let's say in a coaching session. And what I'd be conscious of, Nick, is maybe if you could give us um, an example of of your own experience and I suppose in that high performance end, but maybe then how that could translate to someone on on a grassroots level that maybe starting out or a little bit less experienced in their coaching journey, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, to 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 answer the question, we have to recognize that we use language for many different purposes when we are teaching. And so let's start there. And so it's worth some time clarifying the different categories of language we use when we're instructing and the different reasons we use those those categories. And so what I want everyone to do who's listening, is put yourself into your learning arena. If you're a strength coach, maybe you're in a gym. If you're a GA coach, maybe you're on the pitch. If you're a physical therapist, maybe you're in the gym or in the therapy room. But whatever it is, put yourself in your learning arena. And so even though we could talk about communication broadly, like in team meetings and one-on-one meetings, we're not talking about those examples. We're talking about the moments where you use words to positively influence the learning journey of someone else. And so now we're zoomed into that session. If you look at what that session is, it's going to be made up of these activities, right? So we have a warm up, then we have drill one or exercise one, drill two, so on and so forth. And now what I want you to do is I want you to zoom into one of those. And so for me, something I teach a lot of is acceleration, right? In, in rugby, as well as all team sports, that ability to accelerate quickly over a short distance, five to 10 meters is quite important. So what I'm envisioning is I'm now on the pitch, I'm working with a group of athletes or a singular athlete and working on accelerative ability. So if, we, if we're right there in that moment, and what's important is we can copy and paste that moment to all the drills, all the activities that go into a session. I think it is fair to say, you're always gonna do some communicating right before. You might say some things even motivationally during while they're performing the movement and then certainly you're going to say some things afterwards okay and so if we look at those three signposts that creates what i call in my book the coaching communication loop it's one of the most important models i talk about and so it's called a coaching communication loop because our language loops around there's a before during and after that kind of cyclically impact each other right if you used language a cue and it failed, you're going to use the feedback when you debrief and talk to the athlete to refine that cue or come up with a new one. So it's a loop because it's cyclical. It's self-learning. And so what goes into that loop? Well, there's five categories. The first category is when you're teaching a movement for the first time, what do you do? You describe it. And so when you describe a movement, you're trying to fundamentally help them know what they are going to do. So Steven, let's say you're my athlete. Steven, today we're going to work on acceleration. Big things we're looking for is a big, strong push. Want to see good extension from head to heel, good forward knee drive, strong arms, right? And I'm kind of imbuing this with this motivational tone. Then I demonstrate, okay, now, Steven, this is what the movement's going to look like, right? Maybe I show a video. Maybe I demonstrate it myself. 
Uh, maybe I have another player. And so we've done the first two steps there. We've described and we've demonstrated. What I want to articulate here is at this juncture, all we have done is readied the player to learn. We haven't actually given them a singular cue to think about. I mean, Stephen, imagine if I'm telling you, you got to extend your hips, you got to have a long body position, good arm action. Is it possible for you to hold all of those points in your mind at the same time while you're sprinting? I think intuition and logic would say to all of us, absolutely not. And so I make that point because oftentimes our descriptions and our demonstrations are just for psychological readiness. You're trying to show this player whether they're young, old, novice, or expert, hey, this is what you're going to do. This is what you can expect. No fear, no anxiety. And now the player thinks, oh, okay, I can do that. I'm ready to go. But the key now is step three. And this is fundamentally where the learning, in terms of the movement learning, starts to take place. We then give them a cue. A cue is the brief phrase we use right before the player moves such that it is the last thing they hear, and it's the thing that we are asking them to focus on while they move, such that it helps them move better. I want you to focus on aggressively pushing the ground away. So I've taken that demonstration, I've taken all the detail of the description, and I've given you one thing to focus on, aggressively push the ground away. Then you go and you perform the movement. I might say something rhythmical, push, push, push. I'm not chucking out new instructions, but I'm giving you that rhythm that you can tap into energetically to make sure that we get the effort we want. Maybe I don't, but I could do that during. So step four is they do it, <laughs> they perform it. And then step five is there's a debrief. Okay, Steven, how did that feel? And you might be like, oh, fine. And how many athletes, when you say, how does that feel? They just give you the generic, uh, great. Or they say, I ask, how did it feel? And they're like, oh, I pushed the ground away. I'm like, well, I didn't ask you if you pushed the ground away. I asked you how you felt. And so oftentimes our athletes don't have a vocabulary to, to give us an indication of how something is actually feeling. Because let's be honest, Stephen, when we ask someone, how are you feeling? We're looking for information that we can use to compare to the biomechanics we've observed. So I might say, did that feel heavy? Did that feel light? Did you feel long? Did you feel bunched? Did you feel fast? Did you feel slow? And what I'm doing there in that debrief is I'm helping build up a vocabulary so that they can better understand how something felt, what goes on the inside. And then I can use that to better get a sense, okay, does the cue feel as good to the person in how it works and how it affects them as it looks to me? Because if I give you a cue that helps you move better, but you feel internally like garbage, you're not going to likely want to focus on that. And thus, it's probably going to create a bad experience. And so ultimately, we're looking to identify cues, language that feel as good to you as the athlete in the way it helps you move as it looks to me as the coach trying to help you move better. And so we have those five categories that loop around. Now, as we work with someone, do I constantly need to give a description and do I constantly need to redemonstrate? Inevitably, people will, well, no, of course not. And so that what I just explained there is what I call the long loop in the book. The short loop then is just three steps. Cue, do, debrief. Cue, do, debrief. Now, zooming into the cue as a final point here, and then we can, uh, we can hash out where you want to go from here. 
The Q is where the the intelligence, if you would, around the language of coach, the language of coaching, where, where the systems in the language of coaching really live. Because as I say, it is the last thing we say to the athlete, the client or the patient that has the biggest impact on the way they move. And what we can start to now unpack is the amount you say, so the quantity of cues, and then the content of what you say, the quality of your language, the literal words you use. Those ultimately, those two factors ultimately determine whether or not the cue will be putting the athlete in a position to have success, i.e. they get better now and learn and thus better in the future, or a neutral, it makes no difference, but equally, can our language have detrimental effects? Most certainly it does, right? The whole reason we have the phrase paralysis by analysis is because mental thinking, step-by-step thinking, overthinking can creep into the movement process, which we know can have detrimental effects, especially under pressure. And so that hopefully for the listener, for you, starts to create a a vision of the signposting, the categories of language that exist before, during, and after a movement, noting that it's that cue, it's the information we use right before they move that has the greatest impact and thus needs the greatest consideration. Okay, brilliant answer. Uh, Loads I want to touch on there, Nick. Um, First one I want to say, before I forget, uh, just something you sort of you sort of mentioned offhand uh, there, but you talked about the tone of the language that you use, as in you, you said, uh, I want you to push away the ground. And uh, you, you, even talking to me, you sort of changed into this sort of motivational character. I, I was nearly ready to, to jump off the chair and get going. Um, but I suppose from my point of view, that's something that I wasn't thinking of. I was thinking of, okay, what do I say? Uh, when do I say it, etc. And we'll come back to that maybe in a minute. But in terms of that tone, um, do you put a lot of thought into um, what you're saying uh, and the tone that you're going to say it in before your sessions? Or this is what I'm trying to achieve. So this is the type of demeanor that I have to thing or that i have to uh put portray or is it a case that it's just over the years of experience that you find that this is what works best for you i would say that it's a great question and it's an important question you know can we be prescriptive on our own tone sure we can we run the risk of being disingenuous and we look very forced and so the first thing i'll say is we're not we're not trying to make automatons here where you're having to cognitively as a coach, because coaches can overthink. I most certainly know I've done that in my career. But the, the principle here that I operate on is this. You do not want your tone of voice or your body language to betray your words. But equally, you don't want your words to betray your tone of voice or body language. And so we want, so to speak, the words we use, the tone we use to say them, and the nonverbal, the body language, we want them to tell the athlete, client, or patient the same story. And so if I'm working on a cue that is meant to be very explosive, I might put an accent uh, on an emphasis is a better word there, an emphasis on the verb. I want you to explode off the ground. And so it's not even just the tone 
It's the pace of speech as well. And what we're trying to do here is, you know, you know those books, Where's Wally? Yeah. Okay. So what is on the cover of a Where's Wally book? In America, we call it Where's Waldo. But over here, what's on the cover of Where's Wally is a massive picture of Where's Wally, okay, of Wally. And so when you look at that, it literally primes your visual system to look and prioritize that shape and coloring that we call Wally's face. So when I use the cue, Stephen, I want you to focus on exploding off the ground. What I'm trying to do is make the word exploding more salient, more obvious. I want it to stand out to you in the cue. And why is that important? Well, when we look at our action verbs, and so for those who are listening, if you want to get a nugget right here, you've already heard, okay, tone of voice, words, body language, map together. I think that's fairly self-explanatory. But why do we emphasize the verb? The reason we emphasize a verb, what is a verb? A verb is an action word. It's the language we use to describe action, which means it's the language we use to describe movement. And here's something that is so cool about how language and movement interacts. The part of the brain that's associated with controlling movement, upper body, lower body, and everything in between, also plays a role in processing action words. Ah, so when I use very specific action words, I'm already priming the part of the brain, movement, that is responsible for bringing those actions to life. And so of all the words you emphasize in the cue, the verb, especially for powerful, fast movements, is the most important because of all the words in a cue, that's the one that tells the most important part of the story. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, 100%. And it's uh, like, it, that's what I mean, as in it wasn't something I was expecting to to talk about today because um, I, I was doing my research and stuff like that. But then just as you were talking about it, it just seemed so obvious and such a, a simple thing that people can bring into their own coaching. Not that they have to be experts at it straight away, but just to be conscious of, of their tone and, and, and stuff like that. So, um, no, I think it's a really useful tip and a practical tip that people can take away. Um. I want to go back to um, the vocabulary you talked about, about building a vocabulary, like that common vocabulary between a coach and the athlete, okay? Um, because I think, again, this is a really, really useful one. Um, so you build up, as, as a coach, you build up that vocabulary with an athlete so that you can communicate probably quicker, uh, simpler, and that means then your cueing becomes easier as because everyone's talking the same language. A lot of people listening may work as part of a team of coaches, Okay, so there might be several coaches with a, with a, with a certain team of, of athletes, whether that be individual athletes or, or a team sport. So what's your advice to them in terms of maybe coming up with their coaching language that they, all the coaches will try and use maybe consistently to get to make sure that there's no, um, I suppose, a, a lack of communication or maybe um, cross wires in terms of their communication, if that makes sense? Yep. no, it, it absolutely does. So. I think when you go into and well, let's focus on on team sports because normally it's team sports that will have the greatest level of coaching numbers and and more likely than not to have multiple coaches working with the same player on the same skill which to your point Stephen is where we can run into issues 
because you might be sending mixed messages or even the meaning of what we're trying to share with the player on kicking technique or passing technique might be the same. But to your point, the words we use to convey that meaning might be vastly different. And so let's just put one footnote on where we're going to go with this answer. It's not like we're trying to create carbon copies. The reason you have multiple coaches is because you want them to bring uh, multiple flavors, not only in terms of their knowledge, but their character, the energy. You got the high energy coach. You got the more moderate energy coach. So again, we're, we're not talking about maybe making automatons of each other here, but at a base level, there needs to be consistency in speech and consistency in speech around what I might call the core principles of play. And so if we break the game into kind of the technical and tactical attributes, I think most teams are used to having a tactical vocabulary, right? In rugby, a team will have a certain set of words, phrases they use to describe the breakdown. They'll have a certain set of words and phrases they'll use that typically even manifest as calls on the pitch, on the attacking and defending side. And so I think we recognize that on the tactical side, you need to be joined up in the consistency of your messaging. Otherwise, you can't get 15 players in rugby to play as one. I think where oftentimes we can miscommunicate inadvertently is on the technical pieces, right? And so if we look at the technical aspects of the sport, we break those down into what we say in Irish rugby. We talk about core skills. And so if I was the head coach of a rugby team, we would identify the tactical language, which maps up to our philosophy. Great. But then we'd look at, okay, what are the core skills across our game that we really target in our own training and development? I would then look at each of those core skills and say, what are the key, and this is a, an important term for me, coachable features. It's not like I'm coaching your pinky toe. So to say that we coach everything in every movement is a misstatement. And so when we look at our core skills, what do we feel are the core coachable features, the principles that we believe in? Now that's important as a staff so that we're educating our coaching eye in a similar manner. Not to say that people don't challenge each other, but that's why you have team meetings and that's why the coaches get on the same page. I think many coaches, not all, but many coaches are familiar with that level of breaking down the phases of a movement and having a common philosophy on the body positions they'd want to see in the scrum or the tackle, for example. I think most people get that far. It's taking it one step further, Stephen, that you are, you are directly asking me. And this is where, okay, what are going to be like the tactics of our game? What are going to be our core phrases that we use to portray and initially coach those key features, those coachable features of the tackle, of the step, of the breakdown, of the scrum, so on and so forth, so that we can at least have a common foundation. Now, are all of those common phrases for, let's say, keeping a good back position in the scrum going to universally work across the entire pack? Absolutely not. So if I'm working with a specific player on a specific day, notably in units, and we identify what I'm going to call here a breakthrough cue or a light bulb cue or an aha cue. So it's such that we say something and all of a sudden the player's eyes widen 
They immediately get it and it makes this transformation. Every coach has experienced this and great coaches experience it more than more than more than less, let's say, and that they find a route to make a connection that makes a difference. What I would want to do in my coaching backroom staff is, are we capturing that? Are we bringing that? And is there in the player's IPP, their individualized player profile, are we bringing those aha cues for the specific techniques, the specific skills that might be unique to their position? Uh, just to give a final, let's say, solidification of that approach, in stateside, I do quite a bit uh, of consulting in baseball. And in baseball and spring training, they could have five different pitching coaches working with the same pitcher. And so what a lot of those teams have done is they have the IPP, they identify the key technical work on for the pitch, but then they have this category for key phrases or key cues. So that, Stephen, if I'm working with that player on the mound and I get an aha cue, I chuck it in that shared Google Doc. And so if you happen to be on the mound the next day working with that person, you can build on that with them. And so I think ultimately every single team will mechanize what I'm sharing here differently. Uh, but I think having a system that allows you to prepare your language and align your language ultimately will achieve a continuity and a coherence, which is going to support the learning experience of the player. Yeah, no, and uh, the, the aha moment, I think, uh, I think a lot of people listening will be able to relate with that. A very brief one from my point of view is I would have dealt my, my like regular listeners will know that I, I coach young kids an awful lot. And um, uh, for Gaelic football, um, like it, something like what you referenced earlier on, it, uh, let's say the key teaching points from, let's say, the coaching manual for kicking a, a ball out of your hands. There's the language is probably not the most kid friendly in the world, but it, it's for coaches to understand what the key movements are. But we, um, we, we stumbled across it one day that we just said, step, drop, kick. And it just, it just hit. For whatever reason, it just resonated with the, the, six or, the, the five or six-year-olds or whatever that we were working with. And what we found was that the language exactly fit the movements that we wanted. So the step put them into a sort of a forward-leaning position. The drop meant that they didn't throw the ball up. And then the kick was the kick. Okay, And it wasn't perfect. But we found that it, it worked and we talked about it from in terms of the team of coaches working with it. And within two to three weeks, the difference was incredible. And it was that exact aha moment that we had now had 60 or 70 kids doing the exact same thing with all the coaches saying the same language. And it really, really hit home how effective that can be. And I suppose where I'm going with this is... Um, you're speaking an awful lot from, let's say, a high-performance environment, but I, I honestly think that if people experiment a little bit, that they can probably come up with their own cues and stuff, the aha moments that will work for their coaching practice, like you talked about. Do you think that this is equally, um, equally, I suppose, that it will equally work with kids as young as four, five, six, all the way up to adults? Oh, a hundred, a hundred percent. Because, you know, well, let, let, let's get into what you alluded to, to there on the cues, right? And why those cues would be so effective. The first thing I want to say is step, drop, kick creates tremendous room for that young player to self-organize. Tremendous room for their own creativity. Whereas oftentimes our language can be overly prescriptive, overly controlling. 
You know, if I say write your name on a piece of paper, pretty easy. But if I say write your name with perfectly straight lines and perfect 90 degrees between the lines on the H and I give you all these rules, there's less room for error. There's less room for curiosity, creativity. And so we have to look at even though language is verbal, it's invisible, it's in a way intangible, it still has immense control over how we think and organize our body. And so that's what the dangers of being overly descriptive and overly prescriptive. But, you know, step, drop, and kick as a foundation, that's not going to fix a nuanced error in an elite kicker yet granted. But for a five or six-year-old, that allows a beautiful laying of a foundation on which to build a more complex, nuanced kicking pattern in the future. And so how do we do that? How does a coach systematically do what you did in that example of coming up with step, drop, and kick. And it starts to get into this idea around the kind, the content, the quality of the cue. Again, the, the last thing we say before they move. And so what the way I think about cues, and this is echoed in both experience and evidence, is like the zoom lens on a camera. So let's be very pragmatic here. I can cue you of a movement is the motion of a joint or the activity of a muscle. So I could say, extend your knee or flex your ankle or squeeze your glutes or tighten your abs. These are what I call narrow internal cues. They're narrow because they're very focused on something small and they're internal because they're inside the body. And so people can think now, okay, when I'm teaching movement, do I use narrow internal cues? Well, if you've ever referenced joint motion or muscle activation, yes, that's a narrow internal cue. Now let's take your, your camera and let's zoom out one level. Instead of talking about a single joint or a single muscle, I can be talking about a collection of joints and muscles. We would call that a limb. So now instead of saying extend the hip, I say extend your leg and say, for example, a sprint or a jump. From there then, I can start to say, well, hold on. The body doesn't move in a vacuum. The body moves in terms of an environment. So... I can start talking about the body in terms of the environment. We call that a hybrid cue. So drive your leg or extend your leg, but drive is better. Drive your leg into the ground. Ah, so now I've taken body, I've connected it with the environment. But then I can say, well, hold on. Um, I am, the, the thing here that's thinking is also the same thing that is moving. So if I tell you to jump, I don't have to remind you to use your body. Your body is the only way that you can jump. So I also can take you right outside of the body and just say, push the ground away or drive the ground away, completely referencing something, what we call external. And we call that external close because the ground in the case of a jump is right underneath you. And then finally, I can zoom all the way out with my camera to the outcome you're trying to achieve. And I could say, drive towards the finish line or catch the ball at its highest point. And what that does is it creates a far external cue. And so when we look across that spectrum, people ultimately will ask the question, are some cues better than others when it comes to teaching movement for youngsters all the way to the most elite and everything in between? And at this point, the first paper on this, 98 by Gabrielle Wolf, we're now in 2020. She did a literature review in 2012 as kind of the preeminent researcher. There's easily north of 200 papers that have compared 
kind of body centric internal language to more outcome environment, how I interact with my environment centric external language. And these are my estimates. Easily 96% of those papers are in favor of external language, external cues. And so for me, that would be hybrid because it involves an external reference, a close external cue, a far external cue, and then the use of analogies, the use of figurative visual language. They all kind of bucket together in this area of evidence that suggests that when we focus on the environment we're interacting with or the outcomes we're trying to achieve or use visuals to convey those points via analogy, like explode off the ground like a jet taking off for sprinting, those not only result in better performance in the moment, they result in better learning long-term. And I want to put a flag on this because immediately when people hear that, they're like, Nick, are you saying we should never reference the human body? No. What I'm saying is when you give a cue, when you ask someone to think about something while they move, we don't move in a vacuum. We move in terms of an environment. And so external cues and analogies simplify that picture, allowing me to move in terms of a goal. Internal language then, where does it go? It goes back to what I said earlier with the coaching communication loop. My internal language can go in my descriptions. My internal language can go in my debriefs. Because we say, Stephen, what happened there? Well, I felt this. Well, I saw this. Okay, we need better hip extension. To do that, I want you to focus on getting long like you're driving into a wall, right? So I identify the language that allows the technical change to come about without necessarily having to reference the specific step-by-step technical change. And so that's central to the cue using the fringes of the coaching communication loop to digest any internal language you feel is necessary. Okay, Nick. So th- we have, let's say, external cues. We, we The research is telling us that they're more effective than the internals. We've spoken about the importance of the language we use and that common vocabulary and also even on the tone of language that we use in, in terms of giving our feedback or, 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 um, or cues or whatever that may be. So to try and tie it all together, I suppose, the big question I have for you then is, when do we give it and how often do we give it in terms of getting that optimum response? So it goes back to one of the very first points I made. We are using language to help clean up how the person thinks while they move. The reality is there is always someone thinking while they move, right? So they don't need our language to focus, to think. They're already doing that. But if they don't focus on something or the right thing, they can become distracted by anything. And so if we think about it, our training is very prescriptive. We have a certain level of drills in a certain order to achieve a certain physical outcome. What I would argue is we are not building the mental rituals and the clean thinking that needs to be associated with all of those drills, movements, and activities to the degree that they can be developed. And knowing that when we talk about mental performance, we typically talk about mental performance in what? In games. (laughs) But just as you prepare to play, you prepare to think while you play when you prepare. And so our language is central in helping build, here it is, a mental practice that sits alongside a physical practice because mind and body are not separate. They operate as one. And so I'm not going to give you a cookie cutter answer here, Stephen, because that would be an insult to you and everyone listening. But ultimately, here's my philosophical approach. 
I want to watch you move enough in a given skill, whatever it is, kicking, passing, running, does not matter. I want enough, watch enough repetitions so that I know your authentic movement style. How can I coach you until I know how you move? A big mistake many coaches will make is they go in very early before they've actually watched someone perform a skill and they're trying to teach them to perform it. Yet, how do I know what to instruct if I've never watched you authentically move? And so I think a healthy dose of strategic silence early on in a learning process is necessary. Now, if you're working with five or six-year-olds, you and I both know if you go silent, they're just going to go chaos. So we still have, ready, our descriptions, our demonstrations, our debriefs. We still have parts of our coaching communication loop for crowd control. What I'm saying is you don't go in with your clinical cues until you've given them enough time to self-organize, understand, so that you say, okay, this is now how they move. Their movement is, we say this word, invariant. I'm seeing consistency. Once I see that consistency, then I've typically identified one or two things that I want to target, one or two work-ons, as we say here in Ireland, to focus on. And so what I do then is I open up with a cue. Sometimes if I'm working with someone elite, Stephen, I might present the problem to them and say, hey, what do you think you could focus on to, to, to fix this? And so I involve them. For a youngster like a six-year-old, I'm probably not going to do that because they don't have the built-up knowledge of the skill to come up with the cue. And so what I might say is, okay, kids, for this next repetition, I now want you all to focus on this. And we watch them go do the movement. If we see either a neutral or a positive outcome, I might just reinforce that cue and reinforce that cue. And as long as I'm seeing a gain, a positive improvement, I'm going to reinforce. Now, if I give a cue and it has kind of a neutral outcome, even with a five or six-year-old, I might say, what does that cue mean to you? And if they look at you and say, I don't know, I even know what that means. Okay. But there's a version of that with adults as well, where you say, well, what did that cue mean to you? And the answer they give you, like you say, um, I, I wanted you to drive off the ground. And they say, well, the cue told me that you want me to move my legs quickly. Well, no, actually, when I tell you to drive hard off the ground, I want power. I don't want quickness. So with an adult, it might be that they misinterpreted the cue. So instead of refining it, or excuse me, I'm reinforcing it, then I refine the cue. I make some small modifications. Now, we don't have time to get into it, but I have a whole system in my book on how you refine your external cues so that they fit the person in the movement they're performing. If the cue has, so to speak, run its course, it's a cue you use all the time and it's not making the impact, it's not giving them the energy, then oftentimes you need to retire it. You retire the cue altogether and you come up with a new one. How often do you have to say it? Normally when I'm doing my, my speed sessions with an athlete, first session is we watch them and maybe we establish the cue. The next session then, it's really about applying the cue consistently. Do I say it before every rep? No. I only say it when it looks like they need the reminder. I cannot tell anyone listening how often they need to do that. But the one thing I can say for certain is be clear in the problem you are trying to solve. Be disciplined in trying to identify the language you are using 
to shake the focus that they are using to solve the problem and stay in that headspace with them, monitoring as the coach how it is influencing their movement. And if you do that, if you are present in those moments, you're going to know when to reinforce, refine, or retire your cues. Only verbally reminding them of the cues as often as you need to. No more, no less. Ultimately, we want them to be able to digest what the cue means, do away with the words. We then go silent so that they can own the learning space. I try to speak as little as possible. That doesn't mean I don't say a lot. There's a difference. I just try to speak as little as possible, knowing any silence from me is them learning to control the mind-body relationship. Yeah, no, I, I think it's a it's a great answer in terms of, I love the way you said that you have to watch them first before you can actually give feedback. And I've probably fallen foul of this myself numerous occasions about jumping in too early and trying to, to fix, um, whereas maybe it's just a case of just let's see what happens and then being able to maybe be a little bit more bespoke in my feedback and, 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 and feed into that and help them learn a little bit better. Um, Nick, you've been fantastic with your time. We've three questions we ask everyone before we finish. Um, so the first one, I'll jump straight in. What does the term successful coach mean to you? For me, a successful coach is one that takes and guides an athlete from where they are to where they want to be. No more, no less. And that is a very good and very succinct answer. Uh, I like it. Best book, podcast, resource that you'd recommend to coaches? You can plug your own book here now. Absolutely no problem, Nick. No, well, you, you've been kind enough to do that for me. Uh, there, are, there, are, there are way too many books here, but there's, there's probably one that of recent uh, stands out. It's a book called Deep Work by Cal Newport. And just to give a, a footnote on why this book I feel especially, and, and sports is no different than business and other sectors of life, but there's a lot of noise in what we try to do and what we try to learn and, and how to develop ourselves. There are gosh knows how many podcasts and books out there. Uh, Deep Work is a book about thinking better and thinking and acting in such a way so that you can do deep, meaningful things, whatever that means to you. And so that's been a very uh, influential book on me. Okay, and we'll put, we'll put a link of that up uh, on, on the page afterwards so people can uh, get access to it. And last question, um, your top tips for a developing coach, and I know you've given loads of tips and, and practical stuff like that, so maybe in way of summation, you, your, your top tips. Number one, I had a moment probably it was 2009 where I realized that my entire focus was on the program, not the person. And so I was out there delivering a pristine program, dotted the I's, crossed the T's, clinical discipline before, during, and after. But I was delivering a program. I was not coaching the person. And so for me, once I learned to to not step away, but to look up from the program and at the person, to be utterly present in every moment so that I could see the echo, positive or negative, of my impact on the athlete. That created the immediate, obvious feedback source I needed through trial and error to get better, to know what was working and what was not. But it was only when I looked up from the program proverbially speaking, the mind's eye up from the program and at the person becoming present in every moment of their movement that I truly transform as a coach. 
Yeah, and it's amazing the amount of um, uh, coaches that we have on at, that, that are in a high-performance environment and they all talk about the importance of coaching the person uh, and, and not the sport first, you know, and, and everything comes after that. So, um, Nick, listen, it's been absolutely fantastic having you on. Um, I'm sure a lot of people listening will be really interested in the book. Uh, where can they find out more? Yeah, so so the language of coaching is available on Amazon and humankinetics.co.uk. Otherwise, languageofcoaching.com. If there's questions for me, info at thelanguageofcoaching.com. And then fresh insights coming out of at Nick Winkleman on Twitter and Instagram. Brilliant. Uh, Nick, listen, I th- thanks again. There's been so much from that that I take from myself, but from people listening, like the importance of language just is coming through so much, um, both in terms of the consistency of language, the tone and body language, etc. And that those cues that you mentioned, the external cues, I think a lot of people will be able to take a lot from. Um, and then the actual, just the timing of it and, and how you deliver that feedback, I think is massively useful and, and really, really practical, uh, which is what a lot of people want to be able to take away something from listening to something like this. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you for listening to the show. We hope you can take something from it that will help with your own coaching journey. As always, you can listen or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and SoundCloud. And you can find us on all social media channels at Bubble Coaching on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Please get in touch because we would love to hear from you. The show was produced by Niall Williams and brought to you by the Coach Education Department of the Camogie Association. Thanks again for listening. Till next time. Bye.